Wait, so how how long are we gonna go? Let's let's yes. just let's just go. You know, at a certain point, I gotta go see my son. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Not just any episode, but Ask the Weeds Anything. Woo, I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lynn and Sarah Cliff. We are here to answer questions. So without further ado, uh, let's just, uh, let's get into it. You want to ask the first one or you want me to? Uh, yeah, let me start with, with one that was for the whole group that I think is nice. Um, Matt Bellinger asks, if you could assign one book to every journalism student, what would it be? And why? Do you want to start? or want I'm going to start because okay. otherwise Matt's going to take my answer. <laughs> Actually, Matt <laughs> might not take my answer, but I know that the last time I hyped this book uh, in a Vox contest, I had to beat multiple other Vox writers to uh, being the one to hype it. Ghetto Side by Jill Leovi, who was a reporter for the LA Times for a while and gave herself a beat of reporting on every homicide in L.A., essentially, for several years, and then came out with a book that's a work of narrative journalism that draws on the sources that she developed over that time, but is also the single best portrait of the under-policing, over-policing paradox in minority communities where beat cops go, going in and arresting people for you know broken windows-level offenses Gives a makes a material problem for actual homicide detectives trying to solve people getting killed in those communities. Not only is it an extremely good work of policy journalism, but her second chapter is basically a lit review. Like it's very accessibly written, but it's exactly the sort of structure that you'd see in an academic book. And it gives a very robust theoretical context to stuff without her having to over-explain throughout the rest of the book and screw up the narrative flow. It's really hard to do both narrative journalism and explanatory journalism. I personally haven't mastered that yet. Sarah's much better at it. But uh, I would really recommend that as a book that's a model of how to do both at once. All right. So I'm also going to go with a work of narrative journalism. It's the book And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz, which is he was a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle who covered the AIDS epidemic there. And the reason I'd recommend this book is I've never found a work of narrative journalism as riveting as this one. I was so entranced with this book, which is like 800 pages long, that I downloaded the audiobook so I could listen to it when I was commuting or when I was walking. I think it is an important book for journalism students because you really see how to take a real-life story and turn it into a really enrapturing narrative. And I think that book is something to aspire to as a journalist. And it was just amazing how he took his reporting and, you know, took the AIDS epidemic and just made it this book I could not put down. So I go with And the Band Plays On. These, books, on. these books are all, I, I, I would say, uh, uh, broadly similar, actually, why, why we're recommending them. Uh, my choice would be Jason DeParle's book, American Dream. Uh, this is, again, it's a book that combines really good narrative journalism. It's about welfare reform, and it, it combines really good narrative journalism about women on the old AFDC program with good narrative journalism about the political machinations with, and this is important, with really good analytic journalism about, you know, statistically, like what do we know about this this whole overall process? I think a lot of people um, 
more analytic people like me struggle to tell human stories. And a lot of people who are good human storytellers really struggle to provide analysis that clarifies the, the significance of the stories, and, and he really delivers. All right. I have a question that questions the very existence of this podcast um, and whether we're doing it all wrong. Hi, this is Jeremy from Boston, longtime listener, first-time caller. Why host a podcast about the weeds of policy if you believe that the major problems of American politics are institutional in nature? How can we get people and politicians interested in advocating for institutional changes rather than just policy changes? It's to sell mattresses. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I think the answer to this is that policy affects people's lives and matters to people. I think wow. that there's there's a tendency among people for whom this is kind of people who are of a more cold and intellectual bent for whom politics and policy are interests to think that the most important question you can ask about a given story is why is this happening? What is the root of this? And, you know, once you've kind of arrived at a root answer like, oh, it's because they're racists or, oh, it's because, you know, the filibuster has prevented Congress from making, passing any real legislation in the last several decades. That's an exaggeration, but you get the point. They feel satisfied because they have the answer to the question. But the actual changes that are made to the laws being made, the regulations being passed, the amounts of money that are being given to various people in various circumstances, whether the government is banging down your door and deporting your father in the middle of the night, matter much more than the structural conditions that created those realities to a lot of people. So I see my job as, as kind of glorified service journalism. One of the most important things I can do is to make sure that people who are likely to be affected by policy know what that policy is and how it's changing and what that means for them. And I think it's kind of incumbent on everybody else who wants to be an informed citizen to think about what government is doing through the lens of what is actually happening to people whose lives are being shaped by this? And, you know, not only what are the things that I can do to affect that, but how can I be aware of policy as something that isn't just a parlor game? I like Dara's answer. I think it's good. Yeah, that's pretty good. I also just think it's interesting, though. Like, I don't know. There's podcasts about, like, Roman history. It's <laughs> right, <you> can... <laughs> I, I have enjoyed listening to those. I, I don't know. Okay. I'm going to ask Dara a question. Oh, goody. Okay. Dara. Yo. This is from Stephen Gonzalez. When discussing policies, do you think much about values that might be difficult or impossible to measure compared to other costs or benefits? And one example he gives is the economic discussion of top marginal tax rates could end with Pareto optimality <laughs> or like these are real serious questions to get on Facebook or like Piketty inequality could be treated as a harm in of itself that should be more dramatically reduced, even if inefficient. The question that's actually being asked here, I think about it as an immigration reporter all the time, and my answer is heck yes. Like I often say that in the immigration debate, facts are a stalking horse for values. I really avoid writing the, no, actually, immigrants don't take your jobs. No, actually, immigrants don't commit more crimes, because what's actually going on in those debates is that people have competing definitions of what they want America to be, and they're using policy to enact those. It's really important to examine what is the vision of America that somebody is putting forward when they endorse this policy. And it's never really that intellectually honest to say, well, if you care about this value, actually the policy you endorse isn't the most efficient way to put it forward. If what they're saying is, no, it's important for America to say, make a statement about something. That said... I often think that this question gets asked in the spirit of, 
why are you as a journalist not weighing in on what the right values are? Or why are you as a journalist being caught up in questions of efficacy and not imagining more broadly what a just policy would look like? And that, I think, is very dangerous territory. I tend to assume that you guys as an audience, as listeners, as readers, know what your values are or that I'm not the person who's going to tell you what your values are, that you're going to find that out some other way. I think that my job is to, and my professional advantage, is to help you say, okay, if those are your values, what are the policies that are going to best reflect those? Or conversely, if other people are endorsing policies that you don't agree with or not endorsing policies you do agree with, what are the values that are leading them to make those decisions? I think it's really important not to kind of put a thumb on the scale and say, well, regardless of what you think, this is what you should be endorsing because this is the most just of all possible policies. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. <laughs> I don't have anything more. I like it. I'm going to ask a question from Philip Thomas. Uh, why do so many liberal pundits insist on pretending that Donald Trump ran and won due to a campaign based on a populist and heterodox economic message and that the key to winning in 2020 is pointing out his betrayal of that message, despite all the evidence pointing to his success being due to a message of racial resentment and Hillary's emails? That is a great question because I think it embeds like a fundamental misunderstanding of what causal analysis of these campaign things tends to be, right? So I am 100%. I am like absolutely one of the, it was about racism, not economic anxiety people. I've like written that take. I'm actually like a, a real hardliner on it. But what that means is that when you do a statistical decomposition of like what are the determinants of Trump voting, it means that racial resentment factors explain a lot and objective economic deprivation explains nothing, right? Trump won because of racial resentment is to say that statistically speaking, what impelled people to vote for Trump was racial resentment and to an extent hostile sexism, uh, which some people see as tied up with, with the emails thing. On the other hand, if you ask yourself like, how is it that Barack Obama got elected president twice, right? It's obviously not the case that there is a majority of the electorate that is like so irredeemably racist that they wouldn't vote for a black president, right? So you have to ask like what changed in the messaging environment? And if you look at survey research that I've seen, experimental evidence that I've seen, the most persuasive Democratic Party messages are messages about Social Security and Medicare. And an important thing that Donald Trump did was by abandoning the Republican Party's positions on Social Security and Medicare in favor of the Democratic Party's more popular positions on Social Security and Medicare, he greatly reduced the salience of Social Security and Medicare as campaign issues and allowed other things to become more salient, like racial resentment, right? So racial resentment is what determines who votes for Trump, but if you want to know why did Donald Trump win, right? It's not like racism did not exist in America before 2016 or even that there was no salience to it because like the first black president was a big deal. Like people people knew that was happening. It was in fact quite widely discussed. Uh, but it's that Democrats used to have this very potent message around Social Security and Medicare. Trump tried to take it away from them. Connor Lamb, who did not run against Donald Trump but ran against a, a guy in Pennsylvania who had orthodox traditional Republican stances on this, he, he sat savaged uh, Rick Sacconi on this stuff. And he won. He won over a group of people who were very inclined to vote for Donald Trump previously. So that 
is why I insist that Trump's economic positions mattered, even though I also insist that racism is the key factor in determining who votes for Trump. Can right. I ask a question? Yeah, you can. Oh, I've been yearning for this to come up. I was so glad it did. Thomas Bryan asks, wonks tend to highlight the U.S.'s relatively high healthcare spending. And he asked, what do the hosts make of the argument that this is just a function of high average income in the United States? Yeah, so this is an argument I think I've seen floating around economics blogs. There's one in particular that goes through this with a lot of charts and graphs, which I can share in show notes. But basically the idea is that the American healthcare spending, it's not some big mystery. It reflects the fact that we have a lot more disposable income than other countries and that we choose to spend that disposable income on healthcare. And kind of, a, I read, at least when I read versions of this argument, the upshot is like, well, if that's how we choose to spend our money, then like, why is it some big policy problem? You know, on the particulars of that, you know, is it a reflection of disposable income? I think at least partly, sure, that if you have a country where people have more money, healthcare is something that is alluring to spend money on. If you think of all the things you could spend money on, you know, something that buys you a healthier, happier life, like that seems like a pretty decent investment. At the same time, a lot of times I read these arguments as, well, this is just because we have disposable income, so it's not really a problem we need to work about. This is the statistics we should have for a country where people have the kind of income that we have. And I that I don't agree with. I think one of the things that's also true in the United States is that we have a lot of inequality of wealth. So even though we have a very high average disposable income that masks a lot of inequality between the people who have lots and lots of disposable income and the people who do not have much disposable income at all, if we accept like maybe the high prices are driven by a high amount of disposable income, that's a really hard situation for the people at the bottom of the income distribution. And unlike other developed countries where there'd be some kind of safety net, some kind of national healthcare system providing some kind of base level of insurance, we don't have that here in the United States. So in a way, you know, the argument, like even if that is true, I almost find the argument a bit irrelevant to kind of what we do about it. I don't see it as a reason to write off the healthcare debate and just say, oh, well, our prices are high because we're a high disposable income country and that's just kind of the way things are. That doesn't really work when you have so much inequality, which means a lot of people can't afford those really high prices that we've ended up with. Can I do a question that's for everybody now? Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. Let's let's go real deep on policy. Michael Paul asks, what other candy does the Weeds crew subscribe to other than Sour Patch Kids? Ah. So I was not here for the Sour Patch Kids discussion, and I have always been on team. If it's fruit flavored, it is a secondary or illegitimate form of candy. Ugh. Oh, um, no. But I don't know if this podcast thing's going to work out there. <laughs> I am willing to admit that I'm just kind of a five-year-old at heart. But also, if you like fruit, you should eat fruit. It's tasty. Wait, wait, what's your top candy? Wait, I didn't even answer. Candy 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 fucking sour <laughs> stuff on them. It's not fruit. Yeah. Th- why, yeah. Um, I think my my preferred candy uh, would probably be payday bars, which they now have in mini version in the uh, Vox DC office, which is a humongous problem for the record because it's not chocolate. So you can almost persuade yourself that it's necessary protein, but it is totally not. Do you have another candy, Matt? Uh, I mean, I, I know we're both on Team Sour Patch Kid. I like, I also enjoy Raisinets, which bridge, <laughs> bridge 
the divide between chocolate no. and fruit-based candy? Who is the racist single trolliest opinion that you have ever, ever endorsed in your entire public life career? Oh, my God. No. Raisin nuts are so good. <laughs> oh, God. That's, that's really disturbing. I was uh, texting with my wife before the show, and I, I said she asked what, what was my favorite question. And I said it was this candy one, and she said, LOL. And then I said, I'm going to go for raisinets. And then she said, I got tired of looking for a raised eyebrow emoji. <laughs> uh, because many people find this opinion of mine to be objectionable or, or outre somehow, which was another question. I'm a big fan of like caramel-based candies, like like chocolate-covered caramel. Not like a particular brand, but I think those are pretty decent. Sour Patch Kids are still my number one. Like it's it's a long it's a long distance between here and there, but I'd go for some kind of like chocolate-covered caramel situation. Okay, so so Catherine Rosh wanted to know. <laughs> What is a policy position you hold that you think Weeds listeners might disagree with or find controversial? I'm sure there's a lot of disagreement with my my Raisinette stance, but I'll, I'll come up, I'll come up with a real answer. But what, what do you guys think about that? I really struggle with this stuff because I don't tend to ask myself, you know, what, in a vacuum, what my policy positions are. Much less like, oh, do other people agree with this? But my go-to on this tends to be that I'm more in favor of government funding of faith-based initiatives than the average bear tends to be. I think that there's like a long history of religious sponsored nonprofit work and that given the current structure of, you know, how nonprofits can best serve people, government, A, tax exemptions for religious groups and B, you know, actual funding of groups that have certain religious requirements is it ends up helping more people in more ways than would be otherwise. I think this might be somewhat controversial and this is something I've developed only after reading a lot of research over the past few years. But I've come to be pretty opposed to maternity leave on its own, which is kind of a weird thing for someone who's nine <laughs> months pregnant to say. But I— So we'll see you in July. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we'll see me in September. Um, I worry that just pursuing maternity leave is only going to exacerbate the gender wage gap and make this a bigger and bigger problem when you're going to pull women— out of the workforce for a long period of time. And that kind of sets up this divide that we see in study after study that this is the moment where kind of men and women's salaries diverge and men start earning much more and women start earning much less. Um, you know, so it, it would be hard for me to support a policy that was just maternity leave without some kind of equal or nearly equal paternity leave. Because I think if you care about the gender wage gap and that is something that I do care about, that you need to equalize that parenting and child rearing responsibility at some level. Um, so I know it is quite politically popular to pursue maternity leave. I like don't take this as me saying, like, I think maternity Sarah leave is a bad mothers. idea. I think mandated maternity leave would be a great idea. But I think there should also be mandated paternity leave, because I think if you're not going to change the assumption that women are primary caregivers, you kind of go down a dangerous path just pursuing maternity leave. What do you got, Matt? Uh, so uh, this this came up briefly uh, back back during one of several infrastructure weeks. Um, but I think that there is scope for a lot more privatization in transportation services than we have in the United States. Um, and that includes things like airports, infrastructure pieces like that, but also with uh, mass transit agencies that I think a lot of American liberals don't realize this, but around the world, uh, a lot of the 
most high-performing mass transit systems are structured as private enterprises. And I think that what happens in the United States when you turn these things into public entities, they tend to become sort of de facto or at least primarily jobs programs and only secondarily actual services. And they're treated as, in an economic sense, they're regarded like they're monopolists. Uh, but in fact, like, you know, the metro system in D.C., it competes with cars, right? It's it's not really – I mean, it is technically like a subway monopoly, but it doesn't participate in a monopolized market. And when you allow those kinds of entities to have private ownership that's focused on cost-effective service provision, you get more ridership, you get more utility. In the U.S. model, you tend to get sort of overstaffed and under-provisioned actual services. Um, and I don't know. I, I bet if I wrote that take, nobody would share it because uh, <laughs> you're supposed to confirm people's biases. But that's what I think. <laughs> All right. I've got another one that I think could go to anybody. This is from Joshua Schweitzer. You're an evil mid-level regulation writer. What small tweak to the law slash rules of the U.S. would you implement to cause the most chaos? This is my very favorite question. And before, until about 10 minutes before we came in, I was convinced that I didn't have an answer to it, but I totally do. Go. Um, which is? One of the things that's, one of the legal issues that's come up in the fight over the travel ban is this thing called the doctrine of consular non-reviewability, which is that if you get denied an application for a visa to come to the U.S., you can't just say, I don't think this application should have been denied. I'm going to take you to court. The executive branch has pretty unlimited, although not totally unlimited, authority in rejecting particular visas. If you got rid of that doctrine and allowed people to just infinitely appeal individual visa rejections, you would cause absolute chaos because there would be a lot of standing questions about who gets to sue. There would be a lot of you know things that are currently maybe a little bit questionable if they were held to constitutional standards. Like, is it really okay to say that a single woman from Vietnam is going to be a flight risk if she comes to the United States? And you would totally, totally swamp the courts. So yeah, getting rid of consular non-reviewability would be absolute havoc. You have one, right, Matt? Oh, yeah. So I was going to say... I think that if you if you think about the the filibuster rule that we have in, in in the United States Senate, if you imagine applying that to state governments too, right, so that you would have the same kind of endless that's gridlock pretty, that's pretty great. that 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 exists everywhere, you know, you'd get just X degree more chaos uh, in in basically every state, and I don't know if that fully qualifies as a mid-level regulation writer. But I think it's important for structuring how we how I think about these things, especially because these days, you know, I bet a lot of Weeds listeners are glad that the Democratic Senate minority can filibuster stuff. Um, and, you know, I'm often glad of that, too, on a sort of case-by-case -case level. But it's like it's a decision rule that nobody would ever consider like applying elsewhere in, in neutral circumstances, right? Like if you didn't really know, nobody sincerely thinks that there should be 60% supermajority requirements for decision making. Like that's why no groups operate that way. State legislatures don't operate that way. Like it's it's a dumb idea. So I'll do a healthcare one. I don't know if this is like the most chaos writ large, but the most chaos you could cause in healthcare that would definitely belong to a mid-level regulation writer, is banning a practice that um, has become known as silver loading and um, requiring what would be known as broad loading. So silver loading started to happen when the Trump administration 
got rid of those cost-sharing reduction subsidies, these subsidies that go to low-income Americans who um, would get help paying for their deductibles and their co-payments. The Trump administration basically stopped paying those because there were some legal challenges. That should have driven premiums up pretty significantly for a lot of people. Um, Insurance companies, understandably, said, well, we're not going to get this subsidy from the government. We will just get that money from our consumers. But a lot of states did something kind of brilliant as a kind of workaround where they put all the premium increases. They told insurance companies, "Okay, we know you need to increase your premiums. Put it all on your silver mid-level plans because these are the plans that Obamacare subsidies are tied to. When premiums go up in silver plans, the amount of subsidy people get goes up. So premiums go up 20 percent, subsidies go up 20 percent. All of a sudden, a lot of Obamacare shoppers have a lot more money to spend on health insurance. They can buy that silver plan that got jacked up. They could maybe even buy a more generous gold plan because they have all this extra money. They might get a bronze plan for free. So that actually worked out pretty decently well last year, the first year these subsidies weren't around. One thing the Trump administration is thinking, one thing they could assign to a mid-level regulation writer is to end that practice and say all the premiums increases have to be the same across all your plans. You can't just put it in this one place to draw down more subsidies. Um, That would create a lot of chaos for Obamacare enrollees. It would drive up premiums for a lot of people. It would create a lot of chaos for insurance companies that have already started submitting their rate filing. So if you wanted to, like, really mess with Obamacare in a real serious way, that is the thing I would do. All right, Matt, I want to ask you a question. Okay, let's do it. What policies do you think the U.S. Congress could pass to make housing more equitable and affordable throughout the country? That's from Zach Lubarsky. Oh, man, so many good policies. Um, So, you know, the first thing to remember if you're talking about federal housing policy, right, is that as a a senior HUD official once told me, uh, by far the most important federal housing policy in the United States is in the tax code rather than anything that HUD oversees, right? So the generous mortgage interest tax deduction encourages a lot of individual home ownership. That should probably be scrapped in favor of some kind of flat housing assistance to everybody that could be used for rental or for home ownership, and that would be given to people on an equitable basis rather than the way mortgage interest deduction works. Uh, the richer you are and the bigger your house, the, the more subsidy you're getting. Uh, relatedly, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac intervened very aggressively in, in the market to in effect, subsidize mortgages for people, uh, you know, which is good. It's a, it's a nice benefit for, for the middle class, but involves a lot of sort of hidden risk. Uh, I would get rid of that. Uh, the budget treatment of it is a little fuzzy, but you would want to put those kind of resources into helping state and city governments build uh, mixed income housing projects uh, for people rather than individualized uh, kind of home purchases. Then last, but importantly, right now the way federal transportation funding works basically is that states get money in proportion to how much gasoline tax revenue is collected from those states uh, so that basically like states where people drive a lot, uh, they get a lot of money back. I think federal transportation money should 
be given to states on more of a forward-looking basis. So a state that is expected to have a lot more people 10 years from now, like Arizona, should get a disproportionate amount of money to meet its growth needs, uh, whereas a state like uh, Massachusetts or Illinois that's growing very, very slowly should get less money uh, because they're not taking on new people. And that would give states an incentive, a, a fiscal incentive, to encourage population growth, uh, which right now does not exist. Um, I'm not sure that that would be like a like a huge game changer, but in general, if you think like, what is the federal interest in providing transportation revenue at all, right? Some of it is just like a job creation thing, but then it doesn't matter where it goes. Uh, but it should go to places that are attracting people. Right now, that's uh, a certain number of Sunbelt states, but it could very much be high-income coastal states if those states wanted to create more housing, and they should be incentivized to do it. All right. I have two questions I'm going to ask Dara. It'll make sense why I'm doing two, because one's really short. Hi there. This is Dara Fisher calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts, with a somewhat silly and not at all policy-related question. I'm an avid listener of both Worldly and The Weeds, and while I love both shows, it drives me crazy that there appears to be no consensus at Vox about how Ms. Lynn pronounces her name. Some hosts say Dara, some hosts say Dara. As someone who has had this name mispronounced their whole life, I would so appreciate an answer once and for all. Is it Dara or is it Dara? At least one inquiring mind wants to know. Thanks so much. I love this question because I do not have an answer to it, um, which is the most frustrating thing. I think that I think Matt has been has felt personally embarrassed <laughs> unnecessarily when we did the live weeds last fall and the announcer pronounced it differently. And Matt went, oh, my gosh, I've been pronouncing your name wrong for several years. The story here is that I grew up in Ohio, but my parents are both New Yorkers to a certain extent. My mother spent her adult life there. My father grew up there. Uh, so they named me Dara, like the A in cat or an apple, and we're like, oh, this is fine. You know, it's an unusual name, but people can handle it. The thing is that only people from the New York area can consistently do that or think of that as a natural way to pronounce someone's name. So most everyone else splits 50-50 between Dara and Dara, neither of which is the way my parents say it. Uh, so I grew up kind of being kind of snotty about it, saying, no, my name is Dara. Um, I was also a child actress, not like in any kind of serious sense, but was doing like community theater and stuff. And at some point in middle school, it got back to me that I hadn't gotten a part because the director had assumed I had an attitude because of the way I corrected her pronunciation <laughs> of my name in the audition, uh, at which point I just kind of decided that it wasn't worth it. I learned to roll with it. At this point, I legitimately don't notice how people pronounce my name. I was told that my voicemail message pronounced it two different ways at one point. I've been with my partner for over eight years now, and I cannot tell you how he pronounces it. So unfortunately, that's not a good answer for people who are like trying to, you know, actually sort out say their it. identity. Right. But it's but it, it's a much easier way to go through life than just being mad at everybody all the time for not being able to reproduce a phoneme that apparently is specific to the New York area like bagel water. Okay. Okay, that was that, that was my first question. The second if you, one. If you look up the Wikipedia article on vowel mergers before intervocalic <laughs> R, uh, you will see a, a good discussion of this phenomenon. It often comes up no in the, word, the words Mary, Mary, and Mary, uh, which... 
those of us from the New York area, pronounces three distinct oh, vowels, God. but many people have only two. Okay. Here, here's a question that should be easier for you. <laughs> should no and questions. can immigration policy be defederalized? <laughs> yes, that's a nice, easy question. So <laughs> this usually comes up in the context of states saying we would like to admit more legal immigrants, uh, often to work in particular industries. In that context, I understand where it's coming from. It's a fine idea. But nine times out of 10, the actual problems that people bring up is like, oh, states should be able to deal with this rather than the federal government. The problem isn't that the federal government has control. The problem is that people on work visas are beholden to particular employers. That is a big problem for mobility, for meeting demand, arguably for employee rights. But it's very difficult for me to imagine a world where allowing states to issue visas rather than the federal government while still having people beholden to those particular employers actually solves the problem they're trying to solve. The other direction that this could go in, though, is how you treat immigrants who are already there. And we're already seeing a little bit of effort on this on, like, immigration enforcement with attempts to, you know— obligate local officers to enforce immigration law, that seems to me to be the hardest way to do things because immigration law is extremely complicated and asking, you know, a cop making a traffic stop to know when somebody is deportable is not something that is very easy or realistic to do. But I do think that there are already some efforts that have been made and we'll probably see more in terms of what public benefits to immigrants on various statuses get, what rights do immigrants on various statuses have. I would be surprised if we didn't see a serious effort at allowing unauthorized immigrants to vote in local elections in a city like New York in the next decade. You know, I, I think it's something that can happen, but the thing I would flag for people who see this as a way to, you know, improve immigrant rights is that it's not likely that it's only going to happen in one direction. It's it's going to be red states restricting the extent to which, like, green card holders or legal immigrants who aren't permanent, who don't have a permanent path to citizenship can, you know, have public benefits, preventing people from renting to unauthorized immigrants, a lot of that stuff. And I'm not sure from a, you know, utilitarian perspective, if there's enough that blue states and cities can do to expand rights that's going to meet the extent to which red states and cities can restrict them. All right, Sarah, we got so many single-payer questions we did. for you. We got a there's lot of like, those. Just like I, I don't even understand how we, we how we lump them all together. Um, but I, I so I think you wanted to take together. Sean Matthew uh, asks whether um, if we take it as a given that the Sanders slash Canadian model of healthcare, although they are different, would not be tenable for the United States. What country's model of healthcare would be most practical? And Natalie Schneider wants to know what could be the most negative consequences of single payer healthcare. Um, so I guess these are you know what sort of chill neoliberal compromise <laughs> you can come up with some dutch nonsense probably i, I was gonna go german but ah. dutch works too they're all in the same Deutsch. category <laughs> exactly so to kind of take these together the, the natalie's question kind of goes to the premise of sean's question i think the one of the biggest challenges of single payer is the amount of disruption that it would cause in the system, that it would be a really, really big shift to move from a system that is very privatized, very much dependent on private insurers, to a system that is run by, you know, if we're going with the Sanders model, the national government, if we're going with the Canadian model, the state or provincial level government. I don't want to say it 
can't be done because, like, who knows? And maybe that's possible. But, I, you know, I think back to when cancellation notices went out to a few million people whose policies were not renewed under Obamacare. And it was just like a huge mess politically. You know, the Obama administration had to back off of certain parts of Obamacare, delay them a little bit. I think of that uh, for 350 million people. I think that's a really challenging um, obstacle to overcome. And maybe there is there there are a lot of different plans right now that have different glide paths. So maybe there is one that works. But I think that is one of the big challenges and one of the possible negative consequences. So if we're going to say that doesn't work for us, Matt might have thoughts on this too, but I kind of think of a system like the German or Swiss systems as the ones that are most plausible to see in the United States. These are basically really tightly regulated private insurance markets. So the government is not running health insurance, but it is doing a lot of price setting work and it is telling insurance companies what they have to cover and how much they pay for things. And then it is very, very strictly managed competition. And Obamacare took us in some level, you know, in in this direction. It mandated a certain set of benefits that all insurance companies have to cover, for example. It did not do any sort of price regulation. It did require insurance companies to spend 80% of premium dollars on actual medical care versus profits, administration, and other things they spend money on. So Obamacare definitely moved in that direction. So when I think of, you know, all the countries out there that we think of as universal universal coverage countries, I think of one like Germany or Switzerland as the model that might be easier to import into the United States. I don't know. Do you have thoughts or do you want to keep going? I think that, I don't know, I, I've changed my mind about this a lot, uh, but I think that given the political potency of Medicare as a single-payer system for people over the age of 65, I think it's become clear that, like, Democrats are not going to give up on that vision, right? Like they are not going to strike a deal for a Paul Ryan type plan to privatize Medicare uh, because it already exists. So you can't say it's infeasible and it's super popular. So you want to keep running on it. And it's like it's popular. It's efficient and, and well liked by its customers. So there's no good reason to give it up. But at that point, you're saying, well, does it make sense to forever have a fragmentary system in which we create like a German-style hybrid and then you turn 65 and you like hop onto the single-payer system? And like that's a little weird. So I more and more think that even if like Medicare for all starting next week is not like a law that you can ever pass, that taking a program that exists and is popular and expanding it through some – set of political, you know, argumentation is actually a reasonable kind of idea that like if the ACA had not happened, right? Like if there had like been a law that just like made, I don't know, you could even just like lowered Medicare to 60 or something that you could just see a continual sort of gradual process. And I, and I think that's where we're going, right? Like you have more candidates running on a Medicare for all slogan. I don't think that means like in 2021 that bill will pass, uh, but that they will pass something that moves in the direction of the, the goal they've laid out. Okay, this actually plays into a question that I want to ask you guys because I don't have a good answer to it. This is from Fergus McKinnon. If you were a billionaire, what would be your cunning strategy to wield your influence and get all the policies you liked implemented? All of them. All of them. Well, <laughs> all of them is a big number. But 
I would focus my donations incredibly heavily on local politics. So in terms of, I'm not going to take this by issue, but like where I would spend my money. Because again, you know, going to Matt's point earlier, you do not have the gridlock of Congress in local politics and state houses and city councils, but they actually do do a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on in states and cities and it costs less money to be really influential in those places. So if it was up to me, you know, if I were a billionaire and I had a lot of policy goals to pursue, I would really focus on on donating, like trying to dominate certain states or cities versus trying to go for, for Congress where there's gridlock and a lot more money competing with my billionaire money. Yeah, I mean, well, this is not like a specific strategy, but I guess like guideposts, right, are like you want to put money in where there isn't a lot of money. So that means local races over state races over federal races. It means giving the first $10,000 check to like an issue topic rather than finding the most important issue that there's already $50 million into. Uh, The other thing I would say that's I think in some ways like a little underplayed is like I would try to influence Republicans. Um, you know, like if the issue was something at the very hardcore, right? Like you're not going to get Republicans to want abortion to be broadly legal or for rich people to pay lots of taxes. Um, but I think there's in some ways more flexibility than people might imagine on kind of specific things in there and try to build constituencies uh, inside that circle. Last but not least, I, I just think like spread your bets, right? Like it's it's easy to overestimate your own judgment and be like, here's the one thing and I'm going to put my money into it and that's going to be my cause. And to instead try to say, look, here's 50 reasonable ideas and I'm going to put some money behind all of them and hope that something, you know, catches fire and, and goes there. Um, and that's in part just about, you know, spreading your luck, but it's in part about having a little bit of humility about like what's really feasible and, and what's really important and that the more you spread your eggs, uh, the more likely you are to actually accomplish something. All right. I'm going to do a question that's not about policy at all. Um, Tyler Hill asks all of us, what is the last piece of media, book, movie, TV show, song, et cetera, that you consumed and what did you think of it? Uh, I, I may have stacked the deck on this one by deliberately <laughs> listening to Dirty Computer by Janelle Monet all the way through again before coming in here so that I could say that is my answer. I am not the first person to tell you all this, but it is a terrific pop album, and it's also really astounding to see a black queer woman who hasn't done super straightforward, you know, bubblegum-sounding e-pop in the past do that as an assertion that, like, Black queer women can have fun little bubblegum pop storylines, too. Uh, it's not just that. There's a lot of stuff going on there. There's, you know, a accompanying kind of visual album with it that's also excellent. But uh, that's probably going to be the only new album that I listen to for the next five years if past trends are any indication. So y'all should get on it now. I've been reading uh, and, and was reading before before I came to work uh, Karen Boyce's book, uh, My European Family. I actually apologize if I've totally butchered that name. She's Swedish and I have no idea how you pronounce Swedish names. Uh, but this is a book about um, ancient DNA research, uh, which uh, a Swedish researcher is one of the main leaders in. And it sort of mixes like 
personal story of, of researching her, her own genealogy and the historical development of, of this new science, which is like telling us a, an enormous amount about human origins and the trajectory of, of the overall global human population uh, that we didn't know about before. It's, it's a very interesting subject, has no discernible relationship to the weeds or my work, uh, which is great. So I listened to an album um, by the band Jukebox the Ghost called Off to the Races. It's their newest album. And I have nothing deep to say. I just really enjoyed the album. So perhaps you would as well. Okay, who's who's got another question? Oh, man, I had something else that I wanted to ask Matt. Oh, oh, Matt, this yeah. is from Nick Bentley. Are campaign finance laws effectively discouraging non-wealthy people from running for office? Yeah, I mean, I think that they are. I, I, I think that there's something weird. If you think about what do people worry about, about the campaign finance system, like what we worry about is that rich people can like buy too much influence, right? And clearly the rules we have in place do not stop that from happening, right? Like everybody knows that the Koch brothers have a lot of clout in politics. Everybody knows that Tom Steyer has a lot of clout in politics. At the same time, as you can be as rich as you want, right? Like you can be Jeff Bezos, and the most money you can give to a politician is like two thousand seven hundred dollars, right? So if you want to put like a ton of work into developing some like vast, complicated donor network and like a super PAC where you have a whole staff, like, and you're a billionaire, like you can do that and become a political puppet master. But if you just like happen to come across like a young state rep who you think is like the shit. And you just want to say like, hey, I'm going to cut you a check for $20 million and you go like do your thing, like be a political hero. You, you can't make a contribution that big, right? So the only way you can get your political career up and running, like if you want to run for house, right, you need to be able to phone up like – several dozen people who will cut you a check for a thousand dollars, right? To like get your to even get on the radar of national ideological political organizations. This is what they call it's called friends and family money in the business. And it basically means that to run for office, you need to know rich people. And like not just one rich person, right? Like you need to know a diverse array of affluent people. <laughs> and that means that basically you have to be an affluent person. I mean, it's a, it's not like a formal requirement, but like in a practical sense, like you need to be like a rich lawyer who can call on other rich lawyers or at least to have gone to a fancy law school or had some other kind of connections like that. And it's not that a more deregulated system, uh, an individual finance would like suddenly have tons of people from poverty running, but it would make it at least easier to get a system where people who don't have sort of wealth and connections can come in. Also, a more regulated system in which you had more generous public financing would do that. But we've currently parked ourselves in this sort of like dead zone where there's no easy way to get a campaign going unless you know like a whole bunch of affluent people. And that's not like it's not good. It's not a good feature of the the current. Well, system. Actually, I want to pick up on that because we've been we're working on the next season of the Impact right now, which is all about local policy experiments. And one of the ones we're looking at actually deals with this exact issue. Um, it's this policy in Seattle called Democracy Vouchers, where they gave every Seattle resident a hundred dollars to donate to the campaign of their choice. This is the only city in the world, as far as I know, that gives people free money to donate to candidates. And um, it was 
kind of, I, I talked to one of the candidates who ran on democracy vouchers, and it really it, it convinced me a lot of Matt's answer. So she, you know, is the woman who ended up run, winning. Um, her name was Teresa, Teresa Mosqueda. She's 36. She's Latina. She's a renter. She still has student loans. She has been in Seattle politics for a while, but never considered running because she does not have a lot of friends and family who would each give her a thousand dollars. And the democracy voucher program, it really seemed to change that for her. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who worked on this program, part of it they thought was, oh, well, you know, everyone should be able to donate, and this is a good thing for civic engagement. The kind of thing is I've been reporting this episode, which will come out in the fall, is that the big thing it seemed to do is really change the type of people who ran, because you could just go door to door collecting these public donations. You didn't really need to know all these people who would give you $1,000 each. And I think that, you know, at least in this case, and Seattle's only done this one election cycle, it's the only city doing it, so we don't have a ton of data. But it seems to suggest that, like, the more robust public financing, that really changes who actually decides to throw their hat in the ring, and that possibly leads to a more diverse set of candidates. And I think that's particularly important at the lowest level yes. of politics, right? That's because, like, that's part of the thing here. It's like once you're on the Seattle City Council, like, no matter what your personal background is, you're like an official important person in Seattle. And like anyone who might be inclined to donate money to anybody, like, could become impressed by you and blah, blah, blah. But it's like right now, if you're not in Seattle, if like you are a low income person or lower middle class person, and so is everyone else you know, like, right. how do you run that? first race. Right. Like, I don't think she would have run in any city that wasn't Seattle. So, so basically aspiring politicos who don't know wealthy people should move to Seattle instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's the policy solution here. The dream. I mean, Seattle's great. Everyone should move to Seattle. Yeah. Um, okay. What else we got? We got some uh, good Seattle questions. <laughs> I don't think we have any Seattle questions. Okay. I've got a question for, for Dara. Now I'm going to feel self-conscious about how to pronounce her name. The rest I'm of the so episode. sorry. Free it's yourself. Okay. Just stop caring. <laughs> Is Trump's White House uniquely susceptible to leaks because Trump is a bad manager? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I know, like, Matt actually, like, thinks – I just this, – this strikes me as a very uh, – it, 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 it is a correct proposition, but it seems very self-apparent to me. Like, Donald Trump runs a White House – where everyone is constantly trying to be the last person to talk to Donald Trump about something. So they're always throwing elbows at each other. They're always trying to game who's, you know, who has the most influence and do they agree with me? And if not, how do I make them look worse in Trump's eyes? And also, Donald Trump doesn't like being briefed on policy. Like, legitimately, he stops paying attention into complicated policy briefings. So whether you're a White House official or you're a policymaker in the executive branch, the easiest way to get Donald Trump's attention is to get something on Fox and Friends, because everybody knows that he watches Fox and Friends every morning. So I think that there is absolutely no way to get a leak-proof Trump White House if Donald Trump is only listening to things after they've been leaked to the press. Okay, we do have a Seattle question, we realize, pouring over our notes. So we're, we're just going to stay in the, the most interesting city in America. Josh Hirschland asks, what are your thoughts on the proposal to institute a tax of $500 per employee per year on medium and large businesses, those with revenues exceeding $20 million a year? to build about 500 to 1,000 affordable housing units per year as a means of mitigating homelessness in Seattle. Um, I believe this policy just 
passed through the Seattle City Council that we were discussing. Yes. So, Matt, what you got? So on one level, I think this is a sort of terrible idea, right? If, if you think about it just in operational terms, right, like one big thing that this encourages you to do if you are a big company in Seattle is to um, – outsource your own work, right? So companies face the question of like, well, do we employ janitors or do we contract out to a janitorial services company? So if you're taxing a company not based on its like revenue or its land consumption or anything like that, you're just taxing it based on its headcount, you have this like incredible incentive to play like dumb games about what is your actual headcount. Amazon, uh, which I think is like the main target of this proposal, said that, you know, in response to this, they may stop expanding in the city, which I think is not a great outcome for the city, although some Seattleites may, may like it. That said, I've come to understand why Seattle is proposing this. And the reason is that Washington state Supreme Court has decided that an income tax violates the state constitution of Washington. And there's apparently like a durable political consensus around this. And Washington State Democratic Party doesn't want to challenge it. If you look, the richest man in the world uh, lives in Seattle and the second richest man <laughs> in the world also lives in Seattle. Um, and so probably <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Washington should have an income tax. Um, and those two, like, aren't the only rich people. There's, like, um, Paul Allen is also there. I don't know if Steve Ballmer is still around there. but like, he is. Yeah. There's, like, a, a lot of really rich people in Washington. So there's, like, a few different moving parts to this head tax idea, right? And so, like, one of them is Seattle needs more housing, right? So if you've ever heard me talk about anything, you will know this is primarily a zoning issue in my mind. Seattle, the majority of the land area in Seattle is set aside for single-family detached homes. Uh, they should change that. They should legalize accessory dwelling units. They should legalize row houses and townhouses. They should probably impose a 5 or 10 percent uh, inclusionary zoning mandate on, on big apartment buildings. Uh, so that's how you generate housing. Uh, but you want specifically to take care of homeless people, right? So homeless people – they, they usually don't have any money, right? You, you, need, you need to spend money on them, so you need revenue. Uh, the way you raise revenue in a modern society is with an income tax. You could even sweeten it, the pot, like you could reduce your sales tax. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good things you can do with an income tax, particularly in a super rich state that's home to like multiple giant, incredibly successful companies. As long as Washington doesn't do that, they are stuck doing weird Work around because, like, the idea here is to stick it to Amazon. I take it, right? But like, just like make Jeff Bezos pay taxes. Like, it's it's really it creates. Now that we're into Washington State's lack of an income tax, it creates all sorts of like bizarre, terrible situations. Like, one other one is Washington State says it's a totally Democrat-controlled legislature. They wanted to create an individual mandate, but they don't have any income tax to like pull that mandate from. So they're just kind of like a little bit stuck right now. It, it does not, like, it leads to a lot of weird policy outcomes when you decide that you are going to go income tax list. There's also, there's also my friend who works in Portland but lives just across the border oh, in that's Washington. Because the then and you so get in, the lack of sales right, tax. Right. In Oregon, there's no sales tax. And in Washington, there's no income tax. So she does all her shopping near work in Portland. Yeah. She basically is like the ultimate freeloader. And it's it's frankly appalling. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you can't blame the individuals. Like, this is really stupid. <laughs> 
So, you know, Jay Inslee, I saw speaking earlier this week, he um, addressed many policy topics, but not these ridiculous aspect of his home state. They're going to have a carbon tax, <laughs> which is fine. That's a good idea. But like, come on, man. You know, another kind of carbon you can tax are carbon-based life forms, which yes. are people. <laughs> yes. Tax rich people's incomes. Okay. Here's another one for all of us. Ryan O'Leary wants to know what other podcasts you listen to, um, which I think we did last time, but I've started listening to even more podcasts. I just finished um, Slate's Slow Burn, and it was excellent. Um, it was a recount. It's a seven-episode recounting of Watergate um, and, the, and more like the just the whole Nixon scandal and res- resignation. Um, I learned a lot from it. I really, really enjoyed it. My understanding is they're doing the Clinton impeachment next, which I'm pretty excited for. So that's kind of my favorite thing I've listened to lately is, um, is Slow Burn. I just obsessively listen to the Ezra Klein show, like old episodes. No, no, I did. I cut out the rest of the question that says that isn't on Fox. I thought we were understanding. Over, we're not going over to. and over again. Well, I know you miss Ezra. I'm glad That's it's fair. here, even when he's he's on hiatus. Otherwise, um, yeah. Um, no, the, the other podcast I listen to a lot is uh, called uh, Accidental Tech Podcast. Uh, it is about uh, tech and. Uh, just also like dads uh, talking about stuff that's not politics. Um, as a dad and as someone who talks about politics for a living, I really enjoy that. And, you know, it's just like it's a cool break from things. I don't know if Weed's listeners would enjoy it, but maybe you would. I do. I uh, don't listen to podcasts. It's got awkward <laughs> fast. I was really worried about this. I just, <laughs> goodbye, everybody. I'm now no longer how allowed you, to be on the Weed. How do you know what kind of internet mattresses to buy? <laughs> Or what sort of I listen to it today to explained with. on occasion, but like I mean, the thing is that we're all I I I live in a city where there's a mass transit system, so I can read things with my commute. Instead yeah, but of don't listening. you walk and like want to listen to something? I also the I, I, I Janelle Monae on yeah, on basically. Loop? I I also don't uh, when I like zone out for a few minutes, which happens occasionally. If I'm reading something, I can just go back and reread. It's much harder with a podcast, so I often tend to feel like I've like lost about half of it. So, uh, Wow. Yeah, I'm a really terrible person. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's allowed, I think, to lie on a podcast. <laughs> um, just come up with something like a friend show. Speaking I will say, oh. I, on, on road trips, my partner and I do occasionally listen to Stuff You Missed in History class, mm. which is very fun, like, half-hour-long takes on the sort of things that either history classes don't cover because they deal with women or people of color or the history classes don't cover because they're just, like, weird little episodes that mattered. So I would recommend that if you're a social history nerd, but... Cool. So speaking of, of lying to promote your friend's work, uh, Joseph Zulo wants to know... <laughs> How cross-linked or intermingled is the world of political journalists? Do you guys know all the people at uh, Slate and Politico... Uh, what about the more ideologically opposed outfits like NR or The Blaze or, you know, the Cato Institute? And do you guys hang out? <laughs> um, and do you think that this influences the reporting that you do in terms of topics covered or narrative framing? Uh, I feel like this is complicated. I think Sarah has some. So I have, I'll start us off. We can go where we want to go. So generally the answer is it's pretty intermingled. At least like, you know, I think of it on the – beat-specific space. But 
I think I know most of the people who report on healthcare in Washington after doing this for nearly a decade at this point. And, you know, I know them because we all go to the same press briefings. We were all on Capitol Hill together when, you know, there was the original Obama. Not all, you know, people come in and out of this, but in 2010 and again in 2017, when you had these Obamacare debates, you just end up running into these people a lot because they're going to the same press events that you're going to. In a lot of places, I think it's one of the things that has surprised me is that at least in my experience is that it's somewhat um, it is certainly competitive and people are trying to break news and trying to, you know, do the best they can. But it also ends up being somewhat um, collaborative. You know, I've had other reporters from other outlets share notes with me. You know, I'm not very good at reporting in the House because there's over 400 people. And sometimes I have to ask another reporter, hey, who is that guy who was just giving interviews? And usually other reporters are pretty friendly about telling me those facts. Or, um, you know, I've passed call-in numbers for press conferences that for some reason someone was excluded to onto people at other outlets because I think it's just a dick move that they were excluded and they should be included. Um, I think, you know, when I'm thinking about like ideologically opposed outfits, I think I know most of the healthcare reporters that are pretty wide spectrum of places. I think part of it, you know, uh, some of the outlets mentioned here, you know, don't actually have a devoted healthcare correspondent. So, you know, some of it is kind of like what those publications choose to cover. I think it definitely influences the reporting we do and like what we write. You know, I think a common thing that happens when you're a reporter is your editor messages you and says, hey, did you see this story in Outlet X? Are we going to do something on this? And then you're like, oh, fuck, like I'm not I I don't have that story or like they already got it. So I think it's less um, on that side of the question. It's less because I know these people personally and it's more because the people who manage me are reading what all my competitors are doing and are very, you know, one of the things that's kind of odd about being a journalist is you know exactly like what everyone else who works on the same thing is up to. And I think there's often an urge if someone else is writing about something and they have determined that this is important enough to write about, that that kind of trickles out to other newsrooms who, you know, their decisions will be influenced by that. Interesting. I personally think that the biggest thing I have to watch for in is someone who like interacts with journalists socially, who's, you know, the people I'm following on Twitter are largely journalists, is actually kind of the inverse of that. There's because all of us literally need to follow the news for a living. Uh, and so we are kind of being paid to care. It can often be really hard to know when something is going to blow up that, you know, other people who aren't professionally invested in this are going to decide it's important. Often that's not because it's the first time it's happened. It's just because for whatever reason, this is the time that it's stuck. Uh, And it can be really hard to have a good sense of that when everyone I'm talking to is also following things intimately. It can also be really hard to use the people who aren't on my beat as a good proxy for what stories on my beat are interesting to other people. I think that, you know, people in D.C. have a certain image of what an interesting immigration story looks like that is often orthogonal to what people who are really interested in immigration but aren't professionally working on it think is an interesting story and is often also orthogonal to what like people who don't really know or care that much about immigration, but sometimes they do, like what stories are going to pique their interests. So it can be a little bit tricky to kind of step back and go, all right, I know I'm me. I know I know a bunch. I know the people I'm talking to know a bunch. But if I weren't, would this be a big story to me? I took the spirit of this question slightly differently from that. 
and and you know, I, I guess my answer would be that like, yes, yeah, so like for example, like I knew Dara before she came to work. That's true. At you Vox, did. Right. Um, and I knew Laura McGann, who's my editor, before she came to work at Vox. Uh, and I knew uh, Kay Steiger, who sits next to me, before she came to work at Vox. And that's not just because Vox hired exclusively people who I knew before we started here. It's because I knew personally a very large share of the roughly similarly aged people in D.C., journalism and particularly when I was younger, right, when I like did not have children and socialized more, I socialized a lot with other people in the same line of work. Uh, sometimes that would be ex-colleagues of mine or ex-colleagues of current colleagues and, and things like that. It, it does change, you know, like life changes as you age and you like see fewer people and do less <laughs> stuff. Um, but like, you know, particularly when I was in my 20s, I mean, I don't know if, if you guys agree with it, but like there was a very fluid boundary between the social and professional aspects yeah, of I think that's true. my life and work. And so people who sit outside of D.C., and say, aha, there's like this incestuous universe and like hidden lurking alliances and conflicts of interest are not entirely mistaken. And then I sometimes look across the divide at the stridency of some of the takes that emanate forth from Brooklyn. And I think like <laughs> the problem is that these people don't like actually know what – they don't know anybody and they don't really know what's going on. And you're like trying to reason about politics from first principles rather because like I am like the least shoe leathery person in Washington journalism. But still like I've like gone to things and spoken to people and seen them and like know what's going on and I feel – Feel like a lot of the uh, outsider stuff is very um, like decontextualized and and like misses a, a lot of what's happening. But then I also think like the critique from the outside of what's going on inside is not mistaken. You know, like there is a real difference between your read of like an ambiguously worded bad take from somebody you've never met and like mm -hmm. somebody whose barbecue yeah. you've been to, you're inclined to be a more generous reader of people you know, even if they're not like dear friends of yours, just like a friend of a friend. Like you're going to be more like, okay, this is like they an all-around well. yeah. sensible right. person. Is there they some were edited badly. Right. Yeah. They or didn't just, write that headline. <laughs> yeah, or just like, am I reading this wrong? You know, like, I'm there's so much, like, of Twitter is, like, you see somebody say something and you're like, what's the most ungenerous construal of this <laughs> I can give? And people you know in real life, like, you do the opposite for. And I think, I think that's a real thing for good or for ill. Uh, you know, if you think that like the big problem in the discourse is that people are too generous to each other, I think you will also think that DC journalism is too interconnected. You know, then there's another view. I agree with all of that. But in the spirit of being honest but unhelpful, I want to point out that because I was not a full-time professional journalist before coming to Vox, I totally did get hired because I knew all of y'all. <laughs> um... All right, I'm gonna do another one because I want to. I want to ask Matt this question. Yeah. All right. Um, this is from Logan Wiederhofer. On both a policy and personal level, what would you do, what What do you see, or what would you like to see as an alternative to the 30 year fixed mortgage or the home buying process more generally that wouldn't be more corrosive or have all the problems that Alt A or other non conforming mortgage products tend to have? What are Alt A mortgages? I don't even know. Yeah, it's like between. 
prime and subprime. Yeah. Medium prime. Yeah, basically. Okay. Um, no, so, okay. The thing about the 30 year fixed rate mortgage that is unusual and has policy origins is not the 30 year duration or the fixed interest rate, really. It's that it's refinanceable. Right, So you can take out a 30-year mortgage, and then 10 years later, if interest rates are much lower than they were, you can pay back your mortgage early and get a new loan at the new lower rate. Right, So that's fun for you as a homeowner. <laughs> um, but it's weird from a bank's perspective, right? It's like, why would the evil bank that like preys on people and <laughs> devastates lives for fun make this <laughs> make this like one-sided bet, right? Where if interest rates go up, they lose, but if interest rates go down, they they also lose, right? And that's because the government is holding the tail risk. So that's a kind of a benefit to middle class people, but it's it's like a strange one. It's like it's very oddly structured. It's incredibly non-transparent. And I don't think this is like a big problem. Some people are fundamentalists about this. But in an ideal world, I think we would just like not do that. Um, in exchange, people would not be as inclined to go into debt to buy homes because the terms would not be as favorable and there would be more rental housing. And if we wanted to mobilize risk-bearing capacity to build housing, we would say, well, we're going to put it behind mixed income, mixed use, housing developments, something that would be more socially beneficial, more ecologically sound. Um, I know some people are like really into this as like a subject. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Um, but it is true that like this is one of the reasons why America is much higher in single family home ownership than like Germany or some other similarly affluent countries. I, I guess in some ideal world, like I, I would change this. It would not be super duper duper high on my list because I I think it's not that big of a deal. Although it, it, there's an interesting conservatives used to claim to believe that the existence of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was the cause of the 2008 financial crisis. And because they claimed to believe this, they had various proposals to change Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Since actually taking office, they've completely stopped talking about this and they're like just doing bank deregulation. I find that to be an interesting phenomenon <laughs> that they are governing the country and simply not at all addressing what they claim to believe is a huge source of potential economic risk. Um, and I don't know, maybe someday they'll be proven right. Okay. I have a question for Sarah uh, from Colin Martin, who I identify strongly with as someone who knows much less about health policy than the average <laughs> member of the Weeds Facebook group. Um, after all the ACA repeal attempts, I've lost track of whether anything actually changed. Was it a complete waste of time? <laughs> this is also a great question to ask right before Sarah goes on maternity leave, yes. because as we know from history, Republicans are going to try to repeal the ACA again. Well, no, the interesting question is usually when it's I'm out of town, but this is the odd situation where I'm not working, but I'm in D.C., so who knows what happens. They repealed this... the individual mandate. <laughs> no, they're not. That's a big change. No, 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 I know. I was just saying to like what happens this summer. Oh. So, yes. Things change, but I think also like one of the, I've been reading some interesting political science research around this that I wanted to talk about. So, in terms of actual policy, the Affordable Care Act is still standing. Obamacare still exists. Um, the law 
is mostly there, except as Matt mentions, the big change was through the tax bill, which repealed the requirement to carry health insurance. And that actually hasn't taken effect yet. That'll start on January 1st, 2019. We're starting to see insurance companies put out their rates right now. And those are the first set of insurance premiums that take into account the fact that people are not required to buy insurance. And generally, we're seeing across the board premiums are going up because of that. I think one of the things that's changed has been – so I, I came across some interesting survey research from the Commonwealth Foundation, which found generally we've been seeing this shift that the uninsured rate went up in 2017, which was a little bit surprising because no policy actually changed in 2017. There was this big debate happening, but at the end of the day, nothing was really different in terms of what laws were on the books. In the Commonwealth Fund, they dug into this a little bit more, and they found that the uninsured rate for Democrats remained pretty constant. It was the uninsured rate for Republicans that had been rising. And there's some interesting um, political science research in this space trying to understand what is the relationship between government benefits program and your political views. And the handful of studies that have been done, they suggest that um, and I guess this shouldn't be super shocking, but Obamacare is one of the really good testing grounds for this because it is such a partisan subject that your political views of a benefit program, they affect your interest or willingness to sign up for that benefit program. So, you know, when Colin asks, was it a complete waste of time? I think, you know, no, because you had the mandate repeal, but also no, because this debate, you know, and, and this constant focus on how bad Obamacare is and what a disaster it is, it seems to have changed willingness to enroll in Obamacare programs among those who identify as Republicans. So I think that's kind of one of the interesting unexpected outcomes of this debate, that by, you know, hitting it again and again so negatively and having that come from a Republican Congress and come from a Republican president, that one of the effects of this debate of even not repealing Obamacare, it could be driving up the uninsured rate among Republicans because of how it might change how they perceive the law. So. All right, Dara. Yeah, what up? To what extent can the Trump administration alter the demographic trajectory of the United States? Oh, man, this is a great question. I don't know if Yogi Berra actually said or if this is just some like sub Yogi Berra thing that became apocryphal. Like the problem with predicting the future is it hasn't happened yet. True. Um, but we've seen that it's really hard to actually trace the demographic trajectory of the U.S. even without Trump. Uh, the Census Bureau keeps like pushing back the date at which it thinks the U.S. is going to become a majority minority you know, the country. It's because the um, Latino birth rate has fallen more there, than they expect. There's that. There, They just made an adjustment a couple of months ago that pushed it back in part because they had overestimated the extent of Latino immigration into the U.S. So immigration is part of it. You know, I think that there are very difficult questions about how do you change the social safety net so that people feel comfortable having children that probably would be the bigger driver of the demographic trajectory if you could, you know, if you were going to have a big impact on the non-white birth rate one way or the other. But as far as immigration is concerned, I don't actually think that there's a ton that can be done because the things that are most likely to change the macro demographics are Latino family-based immigration, uh, which is not a thing that the Trump administration has really shown a willingness to try to cut 
back on, at least in terms of people entering the U.S. I do think, though, that there are a couple of levels on which demographics become a proxy for other things. Uh, A lot of the question of, you know, our demographics destiny in the political sense is due to this assumption that as the population of the U.S. gets less white, then the electorate will also get less white. And I think that we have seen that over the last several electoral cycles, that there are a lot of things that legislators can do to change, you know, voting access so that they, you know, reduce the extent to which people who are less likely to vote, which are often, you know, younger and non-white people, have a harder time showing up to the polls. So I think that there are things that can be done at the federal and state levels that are going to exacerbate that problem and continue to split the color of the electorate from the color of the U.S. population. The other thing that I think is relevant is that when we're talking about, you know, race in particular, because race is socially constructed, there's a history of people who were once considered non-white getting considered white in American history, and in some cases going the other way around. I think it's now not super controversial to say that, like, Cubans and Egyptians are both two groups that are not considered white now, whereas they would have been considered white at other points. The more that the Trump administration kind of doubles down on this careless conflation of immigrants, unauthorized immigrants, criminals, people of color, uh, that, that Trump himself does that in rhetoric, that could go one of two ways, right? You could have people feeling that they are being made non-white by how other people are treating them and therefore treating their like Latino identity or their Muslim identity as a more salient aspect of their identity. I don't think we are going to have a good sense of that. Uh, I think, unfortunately, it's we're going to have to wait for the historians to tell us whether it has changed kind of the social aspect of demographics. But those are the levers that I think can be pulled much more than how much can Trump control who comes in or is born in the U.S. All right. Should we do one more? Yeah. Do we have any more for the whole group? Who's left? I think we have one left for the whole group. Oh, no. Okay. Hi, this is Rebecca, currently of Central Jersey. I have a question that's a bit controversial, so I apologize ahead of time if it causes rifts in any friendships. Does pineapple belong on pizza? No. No. I was really tempted to be a contrarian about this, but I really shouldn't have an opinion because I'm lactose intolerant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you eat like non-cheese pizza? I have not crossed that Rubicon yet. I will still, if I need to, eat like one slice of cheese pizza and then take a gajillion lactate. Mm. Mm. Just like a piece of flatbread with some fucking pineapples on it. (laughs) It sounds gross, right? (laughs) All right. Well, I guess that was easy. Yeah. Unlike our the candy debate. Unlike this Raisinets nonsense. Raisinets are so good. Raisinets. Oh, my gosh. Terrible choice. They're so good. How is it that I admitted I don't listen to podcasts and I still had only the second worst opinion on this <laughs> Ask Louise Anything? Oh <laughs> Raisinets are great. Raisinets are great. Send me out all your Raisinets. Yes. Yes. Okay. Nobody wants to ask me about public employee pensions? I have a question about public employee pensions. Let's pensions? do it. Okay. This is our last question. <laughs> this is Elon from Northern California. Do pensions make being a government worker, policeman, or teacher a sweet deal over the course of a lifetime? Or are they just a small compensation for salaries that are well below the private sector average? Also, are they really wrecking state and local finances? You know, super sweet deal? I don't think that's like a good way of putting it, right? Because if if you make your critique of public sector pensions like, wow, these teachers have a sweet deal, like the natural repost is like, 
actually, the guys working at hedge funds have a way sweeter deal. And then we're just chasing our tails in circles. I think a better question is, is like, however much money you want to pay teachers, right? There's still a question of like, how should you pay them? It could be that like the first day you show up to school, you get a giant bag of money and then you get no more money across your whole career, right? But like that's obviously a bad idea because people might teach for one year and then quit, run off with a bag of money. So like that's really dumb. Pension is like the opposite, right? It's like you give people a very bleh kind of salary for like 20 or 30 years, and then they get, compared to people in the private sector, like a pretty big bag of money. And, and the point isn't that like the bag is so giant or whatever, but relative to their compensation, right? Like teachers are making less money than a normal person would year in and year out, but they have like a bigger pot of gold waiting for them after decades of service. And so a good question is like, why would you want to structure somebody's compensation that way? Like, is it really terrible to have teachers with 11 years of experience decide they want to switch jobs? I, I think there's no evidence that that level of teacher continuity is particularly valuable. We see that like very new teachers don't do as well as somewhat more experienced teachers. But like in, you know, most jobs, like after a certain amount of time, you like kind of figure out what you're doing. And like it's it's fine to keep working if you're enthusiastic about it. But backloading the compensation, it makes people who may be a little burned out, it gives them a strong incentive to stay, which is not a great idea. It makes it hard for teachers to move, right? Like, because you might think like literally every town in America needs teachers, but because of pension type stuff, it's like more difficult th than you think it might be to switch around, which is not great. And then last, it really is a problem for state budgets because the reason why you do this backloaded compensation, right, is you're an elected official. And you're sitting around the bargaining table with teachers' union representatives. And they would like money because I mean, that's reasonable. Like that's that's what they're there for. Um, they're there to ask for some favors. But you don't want to raise taxes. Um, so what you do is you agree that like in the future they're going to get this pension money, which is like win-win for everybody who's at the table. But it means that many states and cities in America really are in a situation where in the past, people were given future promises of money so that you now have a situation where you are paying off essentially old debts, right? Which is fair. I mean, if you look at it from the public employees standpoint, it's like, you know, they all they are asking for is what they were promised, which is fair enough. But it means if you're looking from a taxpayer standpoint, it's like, you are paying much higher taxes than people in some other states are, but you are not receiving commensurately higher quality of services. So that's not great. Uh, the solutions are not incredibly obvious, but I think this is actually like an important dynamic in America, right? That like Illinois has substantially higher taxes than a more conservative southern state might, but it doesn't have like fabulously better public services. And a major reason for that is that they're paying off old pension obligations. And that's like a real millstone around their neck and not like a fake made up problem. It's true that like that still leaves you with the question of how do you address it, uh, but it's an issue. And okay. with that. Also an issue is, uh, I don't know what, um, the compelling need to listen to more podcasts, Dara. <laughs> <laughs> Cough, Dara. 
Ideally, but if I listen to Vox Media podcasts, I can't answer the oh, next round true, of questions. True, true. Yeah, so you got to check them out. Check out Today Explained, uh, every day explaining what you need to know. Uh, we've got uh, Think You're Interesting, uh, Todd Randwerf's Pop Culture Podcast. Of course, the Ezra Klein Show. we got a new season of The Impact is going to be coming. Coming in the fall. Woo. Oh, that's awesome. Something to look forward to. Something to live for instead of uh, <laughs> Dara's hate. And, and just okay, just okay. Raisinets, dude. Guy. <laughs> let's let's just wrap this up. I might go buy some raisinets on my way home, just to just to show you guys, or I'll bring them in tomorrow. Eating raisinets to own the lives. Yes. Okay, okay. Thank you to our producer Bridget Armstrong, to our engineer Griffin Tanner. We'll be back in your thanks feeds. to everyone for, sub- yes, for submitting thank you questions. to all of you who submitted the questions. Um, all those came through our Facebook group, the Weeds Facebook group. If you are not already there, you should join us. You can tell us what you think about pensions or what you think about Raisinets. Um, We will be back in your feeds on Tuesday. Tuesday.